0: going to read this evening Matthew chapter 1 Matthew chapter 1 verses 18 to the end of the chapter are our text due to the length I'm not going to read that again so beginning with verse 18 is our text but we'll begin reading with verse 1 The book of the generation of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas and his brethren, and Judas begat pherez and Zerah of Tamar. And pherez begat Ezra, and Ezra begat Aram, and Aram begat Abinadab, and Abinadab begat Nahasan. And Nahasan begat Salmon, and Salmon begat Boaz of Rechab. and Boaz begat Obed of Ruth. And Obed begat Jessa, and Jessa begat David the king. And David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Uriah. And Solomon begat Roboam, and Roboam begat Abiah, and Abiah begat Asa, and Asa begat Jehoshaphat. Josh begat begat Joram, and Joram begat Ozias, and Ozias begat Joatham. Joatham begat Achaz, and Achaz begat Ezekias, and Ezekias begat Manassas, Manassas begat Ammon, and Ammon begat Josiah, and Josiah begat Jeconiah and his brethren about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begat Sealtiel, Sealtiel begat Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel begat Abiad, and Abiad begat Eliakim, and Eliakim begat Azor. And Azor begat Zadok, and Zadok begat Achim, and Achim begat Eliad. And Eliad begat Eleazar, and Eleazar begat Matan, and Matan begat Jacob. And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ." So all the generations from Abraham to David are fourteen generations. And from David until the carrying away into Babylon are fourteen generations. And from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are fourteen generations. Now is our text. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When, as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David... Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son." and he called his name Jesus. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, the opening words of our text make clear that this is the Holy Spirit's account of the birth of Jesus given through the writer Matthew and that this account is every bit as exciting and gospel and therefore important as the more familiar account of Jesus birth found in Luke chapter 2 for the opening words tell us now the birth of Jesus was on this wise. Even though there is nothing explicit about that birth, and it will be mentioned only in the next chapter, what we have here is very, very important about the birth of Jesus, so important the Spirit wants us to see it. Yet, this particular passage and even the importance of this passage is often overlooked, if not minimized or even rejected. The text itself is important and does contain many important elements which get, rightly so, thorough an extensive treatment. For example, the text speaks about the virgin birth. That this is done in fulfillment of the great prophecy of Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. And that the fulfillment of that prophecy brings about the infleshing of the Son of God so that His name is Emmanuel, God with us. Very important. But often this text is not looked at in its context, namely the genealogy that we find in the passage, or in the overall context of the book itself, the theme of which is Jesus, the King of the Jews. The book of Matthew is all about the kingship of Jesus, what's recorded here about his birth concerns therefore his kingship even the context the genealogy pertains the kingship of Jesus for it gives the genealogy of Joseph through the royal line through the line of Solomon which is different than the genealogy of Jesus given in the book of Luke which traces his lineage back to David through a lowly son called Nathan this is important so when we consider this text about the birth of Jesus Christ and that it is on this wise, we must take all of that into account and see what really is the main detail in the narrative. And it's not simply that this is done in fulfillment of a particular prophecy, but the main detail that about which the prophesy Prophecy of the virgin birth concerns is that Joseph takes Mary as his wife. That is the important center and heart of the text, and therefore, found therein is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the significance. Of this event? Is it merely that by adoption Joseph for a time now becomes a father figure in the life of Jesus? No, the significance of this passage is that it concerns Jesus Christ. It's not about Joseph, it's not really about Mary, but it's about Jesus. Jesus the King, Jesus the King of the Jews, and the birth of this great King of the Jews on this wise. You see, the text answers the question, how does Jesus become the King of the Jews? Not now simply King because He's King of kings and Lord of lords as to His divinity, but how does He in human flesh become king of the Jews? And the answer is, by Joseph taking Mary as his wife. Consider with me that this evening. Joseph taking Mary, his wife, we notice in the first place the righteousness of that, then the faith of that, and finally, the significance of that the heart of the text is the fact and the circumstances surrounding that fact that Joseph takes Mary to be his wife. About that fact and that reality, the text here tells us a couple of things. And one of them is that underlying that act and that deed is the reality that Joseph is a just man. That is, he's a righteous man. So that this act of Joseph taking Mary to be his wife is an act of righteousness. That's important. Important because of the significance that Jesus must be king that Jesus is a king who will rule in righteousness by applying the law of God to His governance. He is a king who lives in righteousness, who extends righteousness, whose power is found in that righteousness. And so therefore it should not surprise us that this is a virtue that's highlighted itself in the text. In fact, we should see even that the righteousness of Joseph is due to the righteousness of the great son, who is the king of righteousness. Righteousness is required in this situation because of the very situation itself. We read literally that the woman to whom he is engaged is pregnant with another child. That's the situation. That's the situation that requires righteous behavior. Mary had begun to show that she was pregnant. And pregnant with a child that was not The child of Joseph, literally we read, it was discovered in her belly. That is, her belly had begun to show signs of pregnancy. Righteousness is required because this is a situation of great embarrassment for Joseph. Because this woman now who is pregnant with another's child, he is engaged to, espoused to, And according to Old Testament law, that a spousal was an aspect of marriage. So much is that true that the angel in the passage even twice calls Mary, to whom he's engaged, his wife. Do not be afraid to take unto thyself Mary thy wife. Joseph himself is minded to put her away. Literally, to sever the ties. That is, the ties of marriage. That is, to formally divorce her. The embarrassment is the embarrassment of a jilted husband. The embarrassment that he is a spouse to a wife who is not what she appears to be. She appears to be a blessed, God-fearing, chaste woman who loves only her husband to whom she is espoused. But her belly is showing that she's nothing but a common adulteress, a fornicator. Joseph, being a righteous man, is well aware that should he marry her or continue on with the marriage, it would bode ill for the future. Not only would it bring a good deal of embarrassment, but, but she would be the mother of his children, the ruler of the house. And such a woman would not make a good mother. So Joseph is determined to put her away. Notice the language here also. He is of a mind too. In other words, this is not a mere emotional rash decision. Something that quickly pops up into his head is his gut reaction. But he's thought about it. He's minded to do this. That is, this is what he desires to do. This is what he has considered and feels he must do. He must put her away. There too, his righteousness shows. He understands the implication of taking her to wife. And has thought about it carefully. Has weighed it in his mind. No doubt doing so, in connection with the righteous Word of God, the law of God. He is a righteous man. The righteousness of Joseph is also evident in how he is determined to put her away. Not only is he determined to put her away, to sever the ties, that is, to formally divorce her, but to do it privately, That is, not publicly, not by making a show of it, to put her away, not by announcing it to everyone so that the whole world knows what his wife has done, what this woman has done, determined not to run around and tell everybody how embarrassed he is and what an awful wicked woman she is because of what she has done, but to do it privately now that indicates that although he has reason for personal embarrassment the personal embarrassment of a jilted man that this is not the reason he is putting her away. that might be the primary reason most men in that situation might put away their wife and would do so publicly. But the fact that he wants to do it privately indicates that's not what's motivating him here. In fact, if one thinks about it, and one considers this situation in the light of the man himself, the best course of action could perhaps be to not put her away to actually marry her. Few would probably even notice she was carrying a child. He was a spouse to her. Why not just consummate the marriage, continue the marriage, who would know that Jesus was not his own son? The only one who knows is Joseph and Mary themselves. And in fact, that's what's going to happen. Jesus or Joseph is going to take Mary as his wife. And never once is Jesus accused of being a bastard child, a son of one other than Joseph. No, all regard him as the son of Joseph. Yet Joseph was minded to put her away, to put her away righteously, And really to put her away for her sake and for God's sake. You see, Joseph being a righteous or a just man was one who knew the law of God. He lived consciously before the law of God. It might be true that no one else would know, but God would know. He would know. Even Mary would know. Being a righteous man, he loved the Lord. He feared the Lord. So much that he feared the Lord that he feared marrying an adulterous bride, even if no one would know. In fact, that's what the angel said. Fear not. That indicates there was a certain fear on his part. Fear even with regard to putting her away. That fear was both his love for God and what God would think and what God might do if he didn't put her away. Besides that, the fact that he puts her away privately indicates that in spite of Mary's sin, he loved her, as his neighbor and he loved the child that was causing her belly to swell being a righteous man Joseph does not say to himself well let's abort this child let's pressure the woman to get rid of this child like so many would do today notice that by the way notice that It's not a fetus in her womb. There's a person in her womb. And it's twice called a child. She was found with child in these early stages of pregnancy. It's a child. And God, we read in verse 23, considered it a child. Behold, a virgin shall be with child. Those who would serve Jesus Christ and consider themselves saved and righteous, who would not see the abortion of a child as the killing of a child, are offensive. Offensive to this very passage and even the righteousness of God and the Word of God expressed here. But especially also Mary, that righteousness is seen and that though they are engaged with an engagement that's much more formal than even our engagements, He had lived chastely with her. That's how He knew, without a shadow of a doubt, that the child in her belly was not His child. That's how He knew it. He had been living chastely with her. That too shows his righteousness. It is unrighteous when even an engaged couple does not live chastely, perhaps with the excuse that no one will know. Not Joseph. He also loved her as a fellow believer and a Jew, fellow citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And that's exactly why he does what he wants to do, or wants to do what is in his mind. Not to make her a public example. That's what we read in the passage. His concern was for her. He did not want to embarrass her or make her life miserable. So this just man was minded, to put her away privately. And the text makes a point of bringing that to our attention. In spite of his determination, however, and even the righteousness of that determination, Joseph takes a different course of action. And the very righteousness, the rightness of his determination and what he was going to do indicates that that change of action, that different course he takes, is an act of faith. You see, Joseph is not only a righteous man, but he is a believing man. This too is important and necessary. This is an important and necessary quality of any who would be king. Jesus himself is a righteous man and one who trusts in God to deliver him. The good kings of Israel, beginning with King David, were righteous men who had faith in God. The act of faith by Joseph is really twofold. Number one, he did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, that is, he acted by faith, doing what God told him to do, being obedient, even against his own determination, obedient to God, speaking through the angel, and that in a twofold way. First, even though he knows the child is not his, Joseph does as the angel tells him to do, and takes Mary as his wife. Of interest here is that the usual term for marriage is not used, but the idea nevertheless is the same. He took unto himself. That's what marriage is. We recently considered that from the Word of God, that marriage involves leaving father and mother and taking one to wife, cleaving unto her, consciously and willingly. For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. So also God, Joseph, and Mary consider what Joseph does as an act of marriage, not now simply engaged but marriaged by his cleaving or taking her as his wife. The reason that the usual word for marriage is not used is because normally marriage includes or assumes the notion of consummation, consummation by the sexual act that's usually implied in the usual Word, But that's exactly the privilege of marriage Joseph refuses to engage in. So the words here recognize that. He knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son. You know that the word no here is a euphemism for sexual intercourse. So he marries her, but he does not take unto himself the privilege of marriage the second aspect of joseph's faith is that in obedience to the command of god to the angel he names the child and he names the child jesus literally jehovah salvation or even more literally, I am salvation. This is a significant thing. For it identifies Mary's firstborn son as Jehovah Himself. Jehovah in our flesh, but nevertheless Jehovah God. That He most fully and gloriously reveals Jehovah God. The being of God, the nature of God, the work of God. This is the fulfillment also of Scripture. The fulfillment of Exodus 3 verse 15 where God promises that this, the name Jehovah, would be His name forever as a memorial to all generations. And God memorializes that name in Jesus, and Jesus, Jehovah, salvation. This explains why it is not really Joseph who names the child or names the child according to his own whim or will. Only God has the right to name Himself. And in so naming the child, God is designating that this child is actually the one who bears this name. He is the full, the perfect revelation of Jehovah. He is Jehovah God, though He be Mary's firstborn son. With that name, God declares that this child is the eternal, true, and living God who lives in the eternal present, the I Am not merely the I was or I will be but the I am regardless of time regardless of circumstance regardless of events regardless of the will and whim of man God is I am not influenced by anything outside of himself not even time it identifies furthermore this child as Jehovah in the form necessary To be our King and our Savior. When His name is I Am Salvation, Jehovah's Salvation, God is indicating that for us to be saved, for man to be saved, God must take our flesh. Means He is the means by which God will save His people that's found in the very name itself. And therein lies the one prophecy that is quoted and brought out the text, found in the explanation of that name, Emmanuel, God with us. In other words, God will save us. God will redeem us. God will make us righteous. God will even make us kings and queens within His kingdom by being with us. That is, uniting Himself to us in the person of the only begotten Son of God. So that this child is not only Jehovah, but He is God and man. This indicates that His work will be covenantal work. Not simply saving work, but saving work within and a view to the covenant. God will establish His covenant through the person of Jesus Christ, where God and man are reconciled, wherein they are joined together, wherein they will live in perfect fellowship. And all of that on the basis of the very work, the saving work of this son of Mary. Why emphasize that? Because if this is true, that Joseph is acting by faith, believingly, what that means is he doesn't simply believe the words of the angel as the Word of God, but he believes in the very child in Mary's womb that's the amazing thing faith is not irrational faith is not mere emotions faith is trust faith is knowledge faith is acting according to that knowledge and that trust and the object of faith is always Jesus Christ that's the amazing thing here he believes he believes that Jesus is these things. He believes that he is not simply naming this baby with names that other men have had for example Joshua is basically the equivalent of Jesus it means the same thing but he was just a man. It means that Jesus or Joseph believes that the Son of God is in the womb of Mary and that the other who is His Father, the other that is the agent of His conception is God Himself through the Holy Spirit. This child is the only begotten Son of God. He is the eternal Begotten Son of God as to his nature. And he is the only begotten Son of God as to his human nature. Joseph believes this. And it's this alone that explains the change of course. Jesus as manifest in the angel of the Lord who visited him. Jesus as manifest in the prophets and in the Word, in the prophetic Word. This is why Jesus will, even as we read this morning, bring the Jews, His people, those over whom He rules, to the Scriptures and remind them, they testify of Me. If you believed Moses, if you trusted in Moses, then you would believe and trust in Me. Joseph taking Mary as his wife is therefore of great great significance. And the significance is that this is the only way that Jesus Jesus now in his human nature can become the king of the Jews. That Jesus is the king of the Jews is beyond dispute. It's going to be an important feature of his life and his death. That will be what's nailed on his cross. Jesus, the King of the Jews. The Jews who reject him do not like that epithet. They want it changed to, he said he was the King of the Jews. Now the important question is, how does he become King of the Jews? Is he King of the Jews? merely by virtue of the fact that he is God? No. He can become the king of the Jews only as a son of David. He must be a son of David. Why? Because that's what God prophesied. You must understand that this is what brings us to the book overall and to the genealogy that's found in this very chapter. There are some things about that genealogy that are important. One is it begins with Abraham. Not Adam, like the other. The other genealogy found in Luke is that which traces Jesus back to Adam to prove that He is the Son of Man, that He is a real man. This one goes to Abraham, the father of the Jews. And as we read in Romans, the father also of the faithful, that is, the church. Also, this is the royal genealogy. This is the royal genealogy of Jesus. The other one goes back to David and Abraham But it traces the line back to David through something other than the royal line. This one is the royal line. And where does that royal line lead? By begetting? One begetting another? Begetting even as Jesus is begotten, the only begotten Son of God? To Joseph. To Joseph. And the question is, how can that royal kingship, how does the rightful throne of David become Christ's? Many have assumed it's through his mother Mary, which is the genealogy found in Luke. But that's not the royal genealogy. That genealogy simply Proves that in Jesus is found the reality, the fulfillment of the Scriptures, that he would be a son of David. This is the royal genealogy, and it leads to Joseph. So how does the throne become Jesus? And the answer is in the text. By Joseph taking Mary as his wife. You see, that's the great significance of this. It's not as it's often proposed, that the significance here, this is a nice story about Joseph, to show that he was a righteous man, a good man. Mary, in other words, married a good man who would be a good father figure of Jesus, help in the raising of Him, be a good example for Him, at least until the age of 12 when we never hear of Him again. You see, this text sets forth the real significance of Joseph and his actually taking Mary to wife. You see, it's by that that Jesus inherits the throne of David. Something amazing about this that Joseph is the rightful heir of the throne of David. That of all the Jews in Palestine at the time of Jesus, he has the claim to the throne as the firstborn and the eldest, the next in line to the very royal throne that is set forth here. That you must see going to Bethlehem. That you must see is raising Jesus, the rightful King of the Jews this humble, lowly, righteous, believing man. But he's just a carpenter, is he not? What God is doing here is setting forth the nature of His grace. We know we are saved by grace. But what does that mean? It means in the first place that God alone Himself saves. And in the second place, God saves in amazing ways that we would not expect. And this is not what we would expect. The whole text is showing that, including even the genealogy and its division into three groups of 14 generations. Don't have time to get into that, but if you are astute and you follow the genealogy as it's found in Scripture, you'll discover that there's not actually 14 generations in three groups. But it says here, there's three groups of 14. What's going on? What's going on is this. It's being set forth figuratively. And if you take the numbers figuratively, what's being set forth is God's faithfulness when one would not expect it. That there is seemingly a long time Way too long a time for God to reveal something, for God to show something in the revelation of His great covenant through David. And God intervenes three times in a way that one would not expect, including now the birth of Jesus. You see, God is not fulfilling only the impossible prophecy that a virgin shall conceive. Notice, that's grace. Grace is that our Savior comes from a virgin, without a human father, and in such a way that the child is God with us. Amazing grace. But there's more here. God made two other prophecies that must be fulfilled. God is faithful. God keeps His Word. His grace is powerful to keep His Word. One, is that God would establish the throne of David forever and ever. That was not hyperbole. God meant what he said to David. He would do that. There would be a king who would throne, occupy the throne. A real flesh and blood son of David who would rule in his stead and do what David could not do. Indeed, do what no other king could do, as is proven by the very fact that there's nothing left of this line anymore. For all and purposes, it's gone. No one has seen on the throne. No one has ruled on the throne from the line of David since Babylon. It could be traced if one looks very carefully to a humble carpenter in Nazareth, the town which everybody knows no good comes from. But yet God promised. God also made another promise that would seem to wipe out and eliminate His ability and power to keep the other promise. And what was that? God said that He would end the royal line of David. God did that prior to Babylon And he did that with one of the very kings, the next to last that's listed in the genealogy, Jeconias, or Jehoiachin. God said this, Thus saith the Lord, No man of his seed shall prosper, sitting upon the throne of David, and ruling any more in Judah. And the great question is, how can God eliminate, how can God be faithful to his promise that no one from the royal line will again occupy the throne and God keep his promise that a son of David will occupy his throne forever? And the answer is in the text. The royal line of David will die out with Joseph we will not hear about Joseph again after Jesus reaches the age of 12. And never again will we hear about anyone from the royal line of David through Solomon, the one that traces through Joseph. God kept that promise he made to wicked Jehoiakim a promise God made because of the wickedness of the kings through Solomon. Kings who showed that no earthly, no mere earthly king could save his people. But yet, a son of David must reign. He will come, as the other genealogy shows, through the humble line of Nathan. A line that traces itself to Mary, for Mary too is a daughter of David. But that line doesn't have the throne. It is not heir to the throne. It is not the royal line. And how shall Jesus receive that kingship? How shall he be king of the Jews if he has no earthly father? God accomplishes that by an angel, sending an angel to this believing humble man, telling him against his own determination to marry his wife to take her unto himself, to make her his legal wife, so that her son now inherits the throne of David, which is about to go extinct. The significance of that isn't merely that it exemplifies and sets forth the powerful, wonderful, unfailing grace of God, but something about this king himself. It sets forth the truth that kingship, kingship of the Savior, is absolutely essential. Kingship is necessary for God to establish His covenant, to maintain His covenant, to keep His promises of an everlasting covenant with His people. Not just the line of David, but the believing line of Abraham. Number two, it prefigures the way God will make us kings. We are kings in the kingdom of God. How does God accomplish that? Same way. We have no right to any throne, but God adopts us. Adopts us in His own Son, Jesus Christ, so that we now become kings. Number three, God sets forth that His grace exalts the humble and humbles the proud. What happens to the glorious, golden, wonderful kingdom of Solomon? It comes to nothing. It becomes extinct. It goes the way of all flesh it leads to this humble man. And through this man, this humble man, he is exalted. God will do that especially through his Son, whom he humbles. The beginning of his humiliation is that he is conceived and born in our flesh, weak and sinful flesh, yet without sin. will live his life in the most humble of circumstances, beginning with this marriage and with this man as a father. But God will exalt him over all kingdoms, all kings, and all principalities. And that is what God does for us. That is the gospel. That is the gospel message of Christmas. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we thank Thee for our Savior Jesus Christ, that He is our King, that He is the King of the Jews, therefore King of all believers, King who makes us kings. He who has humbled Himself, being highly exalted, exalts us from the lowly place that we occupy as sinners. We pray that we may fear him, love him, and serve him as our King. In Jesus' name, amen.